0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership.
1: Hello, and welcome to Slate's Game of Thrones podcast, a TV club series that's just for Slate Plus members. I'm June Thomas, and today I'm joined by theater director and writer Isaac Butler. Hello, Isaac. Hi, June. And by Slate Browbeat editor Sam Adams. Hey, Sam, thanks for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be here.
1: Our maritime correspondent Seth Stevenson is off in Seattle this week. I think he's getting his boat refinished. Uh, We'll miss him a lot, but we'll we'll do our best to.
0: I mean, I'm happy to have you on board, Sam. But it is a sad week to not have Seth here to uh, maritime correspond for us.
1: Exactly. I'm sure there'll be. I have a feeling there'll be more uh, seafaring uh, storylines. Anyway, let's talk about this episode. It was uh, season seven, episode two, Stormborn. As usual, as is our one, let's just kind of wander through the episode.
0: Sounds good to me. It was a dark and stormy
1: night. It surely was, my goodness. So our first scene was... I mean, the thing that I mostly took away with it there was a lot of yakking. But the thing that really grabbed my attention was how mature our Dani is these days. She's really grown up, you guys. Uh,
0: has has she? I mean, you know, her, her go-to gesture is still to insist on dominance over all those around her. I don't know. I mean, it was also odd to me that she and Varys never had this conversation at any of the other points in which they've been hanging out over the last uh, couple of years. Yeah,
1: yeah. That I think she's bored. She's like, she's a bit sad that her homecoming was not quite as like completely soul fulfilling as she had hoped for, which, you know, anybody who's ever made a similar homeward journey will know. Yeah, that's how it goes. She's a bit bored on Dragonstone. I don't know. How did you read that scene, Sam?
2: You know, I I felt like just on a sort of basic writing level, like it was not very well done. Like there wasn't anything that really kind of prompted that conversation. It seemed like it was like a plot point that they needed to get in. There was some sort of distrust between Danny and and Varys or, you know, some network note, like, hey, you need to deal with this thing. But it, (laughs) it, it didn't really make sense that this was the moment that she would choose to confront Varys about this, but it did set off what I think was a really interesting sequence, you know, the first, I guess, two or three scenes in Dragonstone, where we get a lot of, not just kind of military strategy, but but political wrangling between these varying factions. Mm. And it's um, really interesting watching that. Um, Rachel Withers has a piece on on Slate today about this uh, War Council. The working title is A a Distinct Absence of Cock. Um, And... (laughs) You look at the scene, and it's really, I mean, you've got, you know, all the sort of military commanders in the room are women. And you have Grey Worm and Varys, who, as uh, I believe Jacob Brogan referred to them, is Team Eunuch. Mm-hmm. And then you have Tyrion, who has been referred to in the show as a half-man. Right. Um, so it's kind of like the Island of Misfit Toys in Dragonstone all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, but you know what? By the end of the episode, two of those four power sources are snuffed or, well, one of them's... <laughs> And they're not actually snuffed. They're just pulled off the board, I guess. Right. I I, I felt like
0: this episode to me was sort of a lot of what Game of Thrones has become about, which is people very explicitly describing their value systems, punctuated by sequences of spectacular violence and competent, smart women having to deal with incompetent men who are able to actually like who are more able within societal structure to hold power like those are the two big things that are going on in game of thrones that these women are stuck with these men Mm -hmm. and people are just going to explain their value systems to you at all times and then they're going to hack each other to pieces and this was like really that and it's almost sort of like distilled pure walter white meth form
1: although there there was the the, at the end of that of the second scene with Danny we you know the war council scene yep. that Danny has to speak alone to Lady Elena you're like okay what's this going to be about and then Lady Elena gives her that speech you know about sheep and men and outliving smart men and she makes that you know a line that was yes a good line but I'm not really quite sure what it means which is you know you're a dragon be a dragon right which like, Yeah, sounds good. Uh, How do I do that?
0: When Elena was, like, uh, giving her speech about, well, you know, the only way to rule is through fear, I was like, what about consent to the governed? I mean, I guess guess we're, like, a thousand years away from that. But, uh, you know, it, it is that very funny thing of, like, you know, Danny's natural impulses are to dominate and then murder anyone who mm. who gets in her way. And mm. I, maybe we can segue to Cersei's completely accurate speech about why the people of Westeros should not want her there. And Elena and uh, it's odd that they're conflicting about that because yeah. actually they have the same strategy normally, which is to just like destroy everything in their way, yeah. crucify people, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And win
2: that way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Danny did try something, I mean, maybe heavily under under the influence of Tyrion and Varys, but, I mean, she did try getting the people to love her in Marine. You know, she assumed that she would be, you know, greeted as a liberator, to coin a phrase, um, <laughs> and that did not work out so well for her. So, you know, maybe, you know, she's still learning that, that lesson. Or that she clearly has this sort of warlike impulse, but I yeah. think that that's also... You know, she she kind of feels like she needs to be the the toughest person in in the room. That's kind of her her big play as a leader. I don't, I, you know, I'm still not sure that's entirely sort of her core, but I, I think it is kind of how she's she's learned to me. I mean, this this episode was full of so many callbacks to the first season. Yes, um, and and one of those was going, you know, reminding us that you know when when Daenerys Targaryen kind of came onto the scene, she was basically. Kind of a bauble. I mean, she was being, you know, mm-hmm. traded to Caldrogo as, as a, basically as, as a gift mm-hmm. to kind of instill a, a military alliance by her, you know, abusive brother. Um, and then she, you know, managed to convert that situation to her advantage. But it just reminds us kind of where she's come from, not just in, in plot terms, but in terms of character. I mean, she is someone who has, has really everything she's she's gotten, except her name, she's had to, to fight for.
1: Well, we also, just before we leave Danny, we must remember that she also had, she made a meeting with Melisandra, which is, is weird because, as we've talked about even just last episode, there is this weird relationship with magic and what's explained and what's not explained and what seems super mysterious and what doesn't. I mean, we're talking about a character who, A, is a mother of dragons, but B was herself reborn, as Jon Snow was, you know, in, in her case, in a conflagration of fire. And yet I always have a different feeling about her than I do about Melisandra, And I'm much more suspicious of Melisandra's particular style of whatever. I, I don't even know really what to call it magic, really, I suppose, or faith. But now we have those two strains of faith brought together in a way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I uh, my heart sunk at having to deal with Melissa. It's an unfortunate performance. It's unfortunately written. It's like a hammer horror trope with a lot of like nudity, Mm -hmm. you know, shoved. There's nothing about that character that I want more of. So yeah, I'm trying yeah. to get over that to kind of address this. You know, I don't think Danny's really gonna be into tying people to stakes and lighting them on fire if they don't do what Melisandre says, which yeah. is her like old yeah. MO. Yeah. Melisandre seems somewhat chastened, but she is still completely You know, the ongoing thing with Melisandre is that she can see the hints of the future accurately, but how she interprets them is always wrong. But she seems to believe that she is now correct that Jon Snow is R'hllor, you know, and he's the new champion of the Lord of Light. But as you point out, in that scene, the viewer can't help but think, oh, wait, maybe she's wrong and it's actually Daenerys.
1: Right. Well, the prince, or as we learn from High being gender neutral, or princess, who was promised, will bring the dawn. Yeah. Okay, That again, be a dragon, will bring the dawn. These messages are absolutely clear.
0: Right. Crystal can I, clear. Can I briefly, before we move on, just note that I think it's a little weird that Tyrion's PR strategy is instead of burning people to death, we will slowly starve all of them yes. within King's Landing until yes. they're eating, you know, rats and horses and each other. Again. And that is going to, like, really uh, endear
1: well, Daenerys? yeah, it's there's so much of this strategy, which momentarily seems smart. Like, yeah, I, I felt, oh, good for Tyrion. He got it right that, the you know, that his sister and, and brother are going to use a call to sort of xenophobia. They're going to talk about the savages. BT-dubs, where are the Dothraki? I mean, I would like to see a little bit of a horde, you know, now that they've crossed the narrow sea. But um, but. Yeah his his answer to that PR problem does not seem particularly wise and now also we're seeing how people are being slaughtered and and you know this strategy that's so smart isn't working out when you know time yeah. is a passing and they're just sitting there working out their PR strategy.
2: Right. Yeah I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that Tyrion's strategy is you completely free of the impulse to vengeance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's obviously this very shocking moment in the episode and he's the one who reveals that part of their master plan is to attack the the Lannisters' uh, stronghold at, at Casterly Rock directly, and that's what the Dothraki army is, is for, and we kind of, I guess, are led to infer that that's... You know his idea. He's the one who understands how important that is, as as a mm-hmm. Lannister himself. Um, and militarily, that seems to make a certain amount of sense. But there's also clearly a, a certain amount of getting back at yeah. the family that never accepted him, and and uh, yeah, fact, and, you know, quite a bit more. Yeah. And and
1: that's very appealing to the other well, the women at the table who are like, yeah, yeah, I want to bring down those Lannisters too. Bring it on, bro. I'm sorry, I always forget where Cersei and Co are, are they at King's, King's Landing, Landing still? Okay. So Cersei and Jamie and Kyborn are all at King's Landing and they're all, you know, they're making those awful xenophobic appeals. And and that was very interesting the way that Cersei sort of did present Danny's narrative in Marine because yeah, she did crucify guys and she did punish them, but they were slavers.
0: That is true. It should be said though, and I was thinking about this last year, and we, we may have even talked about it last season, that, you know Daenerys is a mass murderer surrounded by a team of managerial incompetence and (laughs) the idea that the people of Westeros should be like clamoring for her return or should cheer her or whatever like Westeros. It's made very clear in this episode to me anyway. Westeros is like deeply screwed. Yeah. There is no yeah. one of these paths that is a good one. The xenophobia and racism of Cersei's speech is is, mm-hmm. is obviously a problem. But it is also factually accurate that Daenerys murdered everyone in the ruling class yeah. and then incompetently managed it and has this like horde of people with different customs, shall we say, yes. uh, uh, <laughs> that are coming there that the people around her are frightened of. I mean, yeah. all of that is totally true.
1: Yeah. It is. And again, like, there's a weird feeling of where I know I'm I'm not being rational of, I kind of love those dragons. And so when Kaiborn brings out his earth to air, you know, anti-dragon missile.
0: Big
2: ass crossbow.
0: Yes. Yeah, it, isn't it just a ballista? I mean, isn't it just actually like a medieval siege weapon? Yeah, it's just, it's kinda, giant, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: But I'm like, don't kill a dragon. But of right. course, the dragons are, as everybody points out, are gonna just killed hordes of humanity blindly and and without particular cause.
2: They're like the WMD of, of yeah.
1: I, I do think it's interesting
0: that Tyrion's strategy doesn't include them or even right. talking about them because I do feel like there's that whole sort of urban legend that you know they were thinking about testing the atom bomb and then sort of telling the japanese oh we have this thing you uh-huh. know blah, blah. so there's no like you know we all know they have dragons they they don't demand the surrender or else we'll do that you know they're mm-hmm. just sort of like off
1: the table right, right. for right now i guess it's just a very expensive effect and we, we hold that in reserve <laughs> yeah exactly okay so anything else about um king's landing and and uh, anti-dragon technique technology
0: no although jamie's a brunette now when did that happen
1: yes i don't know. Oh, and, I mean, I there's so much going on with the looks of the Lannisters.
2: That's happened to Tyrion, too. Someone was recently pointing out on, on Twitter that one of the stories of the last seven seasons of Game of Thrones is them, like, stop stop pretending that Peter Dinklage is blonde.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it looks good on Peter Dinklage, but, like, part of the point of Jaime Lannister is that he and Cersei are both blonde, which is why their kids being blonde is a tell. Like, it's actually, like, important... This is this is a very nerdy point, but it's actually important to the story that they both be blonde.
1: When there are no more kids, they can let their hair grow out, yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. yeah, exactly. Okay, let us move now to the Citadel, mm-hmm. where Sam Tarley is just having to deal with the old-school, closed mentality. that just don't want to try anything. He wants to disrupt. He wants to, you know, move fast and break things. And the Archmeister is just an old stick in the mud who's just committed to his ways. Am I crazy to be frustrated or or is the archmeister actually correct? Both, I guess.
0: I did appreciate that the archmaster had an answer, where he was like, "Yes, I've read that. That guy died of of yeah. grayscale. I mean, I thought that was a good way of handling that. Sam seems to oddly be this like crazy, once in a hundred year genius who yeah. knows the answer to everything. Yeah. And we'll we'll see how things work out with uh, poor Sir Jorah. Right. You have to think, in keeping with the ethos of the show, that at some point Sam has to screw something up pretty mm-hmm, royally mm-hmm. through this kind of precociousness.
2: Yeah. yeah. Although it does seem like you know, if he does. Fail and certainly, you know, not towards some later end. Then, kind of, why is this whole, you know, plot there there to begin with? Mm-hmm. And mean, they could have just killed off Jorah last right. season if that right. were where this were going. But true. Yeah. Can
0: can I ask both of you how did you feel about this week's latest match cut between <laughs> something disgusting and food? Oh
1: God, it was admirable. It was admirable. I mean, the the way that that guy was eating when we shifted to the food was pretty gross in and of itself, but. Yeah, the shift from grayscale puss to uh, pie filling was was a one plus. Would eat again.
2: It did take a little of the joy out of hot pie's reappearance. It did. Kind of I agree. It was okay. something so just appalling.
1: Yeah, it did. Before we get to the reunion of hot pie and Aria, I think we must talk about the Misanday Grey Worm scene, which was very extended. Surprisingly extended, given that it wasn't that much happening. I mean, in terms of like plot movement.
0: I I like the I like that Game of Thrones is like we're finally going to do a sex scene focused on female pleasure and because of that it has to be a man who has no dick. Like that was how they that was that's the only way they could conceive of a scene a sex scene about woman's pleasure is if the man is actually incapable of right. getting you know sort of traditional sexual pleasure
1: it's true and you know actually you, there were a lot of tweets about like i thought he didn't have a dick as if that you know meant that he couldn't pleasure Day, which you know of course i thought well oh, maybe this is all about this is game of thrones doing fan service for actually yes don't need a dick but i'm just realizing that yeah oh gray worms was his pleasure is, is his pleasure in pleasing Missende?
0: I'm fine with that. I just meant that it's yeah. interesting that yeah. it's oh, like, that's what it takes yes. to get like a yes. scene that yes. is really focused on like a woman receiving yes. sexual gratification. Yes. Well,
2: I, You know, world sex. I should say, you know, kind of is already canon in the show because as introduced by uh, Jon Snow to Egret. So, right. So, right. Um,
1: right. 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 <laughs> right. Canon. Yes. It's, it's in the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> yeah. right. It is known. It was uh,
2: very
0: long. It and was. I'm, and again, Game of Thrones getting back to basics, people explaining themselves, hacking each other to pieces, completely gratuitous extended nudity. Yes. You know, it's like it really was a, a return to form this yes. week.
1: Yes. A++ would, would watch again. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So let us get to Arya. That was a really interesting scene. Uh, The reunion with Hot Pies was fine. She's got the information, uh, as you've been uh, reminding us. It was about, hey, hey, how you doing, Ari? How you doing, Hot Pie? Oh, and also, here's a really important plot point that you need to know. But then, of course, the reunion with Nymeria. Uh,
0: Yeah. Well, I will say the hot pie thing, I think it is important to the choice that Arya makes that hot pie is like a little weirded out by her. Yeah. And that she notices that. That she begins to reconnect with some semblance of her humanity upon seeing people who knew her back when she used to be a human. So I do think that beat is important in that conversation. I like hot pie. It's good to see him. What, what, What did you guys make of Nymeria?
1: At first, I was just sad because... You know, I've been looking forward to that reunion and I did see them walking off into the sunset together. But I, I watched the, you know, the the little clues from Weiss and Benioff at the end and, and they sort of pitched it as it's a flashback to season one again where Arya told Ned when Ned's suggesting that she could become a princess and wear all the finery and all that. What does she say? That's, that's not me. And I think more though that it's about consequences that Nymeria does recognize Arya that she... She doesn't kill her, that Nymeria, an animal, is able to not take revenge for, because her last memory is of Arya throwing stones at her. So there's consequences in that she doesn't kill her, but she also doesn't go off with her. Although I want it didn't give me what I wanted, it felt like there was a message to Arya that, you know, you're not dead yet, but you've lost some things. And maybe also that she's got all of the supernatural help that she's going to get. What about you, Sam?
2: This was, I I don't know, maybe I'm a monster or more of a cat person. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just someone who hasn't read the books. Um, This is not one of those things that I I had, like, a tremendous emotional uh, reservoir built up for. So I I thought it was fine. I mean, the the, the subtext is interesting, you know, in this kind of trying to kind of re-civilize this feral creature, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I liked Maisie Williams, you know, acting in that yeah, scene, kind of her, her reaction shots to it. it you know, yeah. it felt, I gathered there's a reason why we still need uh, Nymeria around um, plot-wise. It did feel, you know, and this is, you know, common complaint with humor, that's that scene did feel kind of fanservice-y to me mm-hmm. as, as a whole.
1: But... Mr. Butler?
0: I feel like had they, not to get into the books, but in the books there's these constant kind of, almost annoying they're so on the nose where villagers are like well you know there's this mysterious wolf that's (laughs) killing Lannister soldiers have you heard about this mystery and you know it's Nymeria and you're waiting for that so I felt like that was a weird like Yes, people who read the books, here you go. We've yeah. checked that box. I mean, we haven't seen Nymeria since episode, what, three of <laughs> yeah. season one or something yeah. like. I was fist pumping on my couch when that happened. and thinking of you, oh, June. Oh, I know. And uh, Anne was like, I have no idea who this animal is. So I do feel I, I would agree with you that even though I loved it, Sam, it was a, a fan servicey moment. But then they sort of dial it back a little mm-hmm. because Nymeria does it. She doesn't then start riding yeah. Nymeria North or whatever.
1: Right. Also, what happened to Ghost? A ghost got killed, didn't? Did he? Ghost get killed? Did he not so. get raised from the dead? I don't believe. Oh my so. goodness!
0: People are going to kill us for not knowing. The I know, answer to but, this, I, but... I, I think he's just. Dead. Okay. I
1: was I was going through the 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 direwolf uh, stories in my head before, and I'm pretty sure uh, that he just went with the first Jon Snow killing. All right, so okay, so we're going to just let go of of Arya, who's on her way now to. Winterfell. To on her way now and, to Winterfell. And
0: Bran has come through the wall and is presumably headed south. So there's this like, there's a very, there's a big, you know, they're signaling a lot of like very heartwarming uh, yes. uh, reunions, right? All the Stark kids are going to get together. And I,
1: and I have to say, before I thought of Direwolves and Nymeria, I was like, oh my God, do not tell me that, that she's going to just get eaten by wolves on her way to the reunion with her r- siblings. <laughs> because that would not have been beyond the realm of, of Game of Thrones' cruelty. Okay. We're finally getting to the point. Where we have the episode's big scene, the big craziness that ended it all, that that was a big, like, exciting scene and a lot of, like, crazy acting and crazy events, but also that, you know, ruffled up the the nicely laid plans that were set at the beginning of the episode, like, yeah, we're gonna go here, we're gonna pick up this, we're gonna go there, you're gonna take care of this, like so all of the battle and the and the war council things have been messed up. But I'm gonna just kind of pull one out for my homie Seth and who's not here to talk about that amazing naval scene. But what was the most amazing part of that final battle scene for you? For Isaac for me, Butler, yeah.
0: ooh, gosh! I mean, there's part of me that's like a little grateful that we we might not have to deal with the sand snakes mm-hmm, that often mm-hmm, anymore mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. on the on the show. Yeah. Um, so that was that was kind yeah. of great. And <laughs> I don't know, I I enjoyed actually the first opening beat of it of the ship getting rammed yeah. and then the bridge coming down yeah. and then you're just yeah. sort of like, yeah, it's a naval battle. It's yeah. um, so maybe. like, but that it's confined yes. in this space kind of raises the stakes in an interesting way. You actually can't run away from it. I mean, yeah. Theon does, but right. you know, the ability to run away is very it's. It, that that they treated it as a different animal from the sort of battlefield combat. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. I was grateful for that. Yeah. I do think they seem to have very highly evolved ballistics, and I'm wondering why you need dragons if you have really highly evolved ballistics like that. Yeah. But the uh, but you know like I did I appreciated that they took the time to sort of design this fight yeah. in a way that it would feel different from yeah. the other ones that we've seen.
1: And it really is as Seth predicted: boarding and close combat. Yep. There's very little fancy. About it, and it was brutal and hideous, and uh, the sailors were exceedingly cruel combatants. Yeah, and of course, Euron is absolutely bonkers.
0: Euron, the bonkers rock star dude who. Yeah, yeah. I did think there was a weird thing in that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I do feel like the the show has shown a little bit of an unwillingness to dispatch major characters Mm. as it's departed from the books. Like, I sort of don't understand why. I mean, I'm sure it would be made clear to me why Theon and his sister weren't killed, yeah, yeah, why yeah. Uh, the remaining Sand Snakes weren't murdered. Like, I
1: think, I think I know why Elaria and I think it's Nymeria, actually, Sand were kept alive because I think that Euron's taken them to Cersei as the gift that's going to win her hand. Right. Because she For killed, ransom or something. Yeah, instead beca- of their heads. Because she killed the last remaining daughter. Uh, yep. yeah. Yeah, his name. I don't remember. Myrcella, yeah. But yeah, Yara, we said there would have been that moment where he tortures Theon, but then he would have just... A throw, I think.
0: Yeah, there's that weird thing where I mean, the last time that he talked about them, he was like, "Let's go murder them," and yeah. so it just seemed, yeah. you know, like yeah. you could bring you could bring those hostages and then yeah. some heads, or yeah, you know, exactly. you, like a sort of diverse banquet of gifts.
1: Absolutely, Sam. Your thoughts on the uh, the battle scene at the end?
2: You know, your own great joy, FTW. Yeah. Uh, as I say, I mean, it, they've clearly reworked um, Pillow Azbeck in this Mm -hmm. season to kind of fill the uh, Ramsey Bolton shaped hole in the show. He's the new kind of lusty sadist Mm -hmm. um, who's taking this place but I love how much more fun they've, they've made this character even than he has been before. I mean, his Entrance on this giant, you know, ext- having mentioned the lack of cock before, this yeah. giant, extremely phallic um, yes. <laughs> entry on onto these onto these ships. Yeah. The way he's kind of swinging his head from side to side and kind of waggling his tongue yeah. like some kind of second-rate Jack Nicholson impersonator totally. is just enormously enjoyable, and I mm-hmm. feel like it's a level of you know. Maybe borderline camp, but a level yeah. of kind of, you know, stylized enjoyment that this show has really steered away from as mm-hmm. things have kind of gotten more dire and apocalyptic. Right. Um, and it was one of the problems with Ramsey Bolton is he just became, he you know, he went past being someone you love to hate into someone you, you know, got tired of hating because yeah. he was just so kind of monotonous and yeah. horrible. And I really like what they're. Doing with this character, and it's going to be very satisfying when they. Uh, I, I'm guessing Theon eventually kills him.
1: Yeah, yeah I guess.
0: I, I think, Sam, you hit on something there as well, which is that I think there's a clear dividing line between the actors who are really great at this kind of scenery chewing enjoying their own villainy mm-hmm. or their you know this almost camp thing and the actors who like can't quite do it right like uh Euron's great at that Varys is great at that Cersei is great at that mm-hmm. you know there's some people are like really great Littlefinger Littlefinger yeah. yeah. uh I actually would put him on the other camp mm-hmm. but you know oh, but oh, I, I think some of nice the actors of are like really delicious to watch doing uh-huh, that and uh-huh. some of them aren't and they really hit the jackpot with Euron it's yeah. just like you want to watch him you know, enjoy being terrible.
1: Yeah, it's actually funny because Pillow Asbeck seems to be the one Dane who doesn't have the best English accent, but it, he has magnificent style points. I mean, yeah. you're right. His Jack Nicholson impersonation is just fantastic. Yeah, he's a lot of fun to watch. And, and even when he's doing gross, vile, horrible things. All right. It's the time in the episode when we ask who was the worst person in Westeros this week. You're the worst
0: shit in the Seven Kingdoms
2: plenty worse than me.
1: Sam Adams, who is your pick for worst person in Westeros this week?
2: My pick for worst person in Westeros is also my pick for best person in Westeros, um, which is your own Greyjoy this week. As I said, I I tremendously enjoyed what the actor is doing. The horribleness with which he dispatched the sand snakes and, um, you know, hung them from the ship and licking his lips as he holds an axe to his niece's neck is uh, he's a bad, bad man.
1: He really is. Isaac Butler?
0: I, I struggled with, like last week, I struggled with, with this one this mm. week. Uh, I'm tempted to say the war profiteers in the hot pie scene.
2: Oh, my goodness. Because, yes. I mean, you know, yes. you know,
0: it's like it's a very Mother Courage thing. But, yeah. you know, the war profiteers, yep. I just yep. think, F you guys. Really? But I am going to go with Theon. And I'm going to attach to this that gif of Tyra Banks going, I was rooting for you. Do you know what I mean? It's just like I just feel just like, ah, you've come back from so much. And then you 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 you're just
1: he you, was triggered, though. It's, you know, the mind is such a I delicate organ. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, he's a victim.
0: I know. Yeah, I know. But still but, yeah. it's that was that's that's was very upsetting to me and I knew that probably someone else would pick Euron. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: he did get rid of the sand snakes, which is yes. a net plus uh, I know, in my I book.
1: Know. They just never worked. <laughs> they really didn't. I don't I was... think
0: it's necessarily their fault.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. No. Um, it's just...
0: but it's just like a ill conceived it's yeah. ill conceived in the books, it was ill conceived on the show. Yeah. And...
1: yeah. Well, I'm trying to pick between two choices. One is Kyborn because I just don't want him to kill the dragon, even though I know that you have to because they're essentially just pieces of ordnance. They're too special. I don't want them to go. And also, he's horrible in every possible way. He's so gross. But I think I might have to go with Archmeister Ebrose.
0: Is that Jim Broadbent?
1: It is. Mm. Because he's just too much of a job's worth. I mean, it I think it's it's maybe it's that I'm picking up on the urgency that Jon Snow and Samuel Tarley feel because they've seen the White Walkers and they know what's gonna come. And so this whole thing of like, oh, you gotta be slow and careful and precise, that's not appropriate anymore. And sometimes you've just gotta do the treatment of, of grayscale that may or may not kill you and so I'm I'm gonna give Archmaester. Ebros, my vote for worst person in Westeros this week. Come on, man. It's time to break some things. That's what I would say. Let's disrupt. Let's disrupt. All right. With that, we bring this episode of the Game of Thrones TV Club to an end. Uh, We will be back next week to talk about episode three. I'm June Thomas. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Isaac.
0: Thank you, June. Thank you.
1: And uh, please join us next week.